What's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. A leaked video shows Tucker Carlson with some choice words for his former employer's dreaming platform, Fox Nation. We have the details. The so-called administrative state. A presidential candidate wants to abolish it. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court took up a case that could weaken federal agencies. The U.S. could default on its debt as early as June 1st, according to the Treasury Secretary, and this could lead to a global financial crisis. Homicides on the rise in U.S. cities. A report finds mayoral politics are associated with the increases. A leading expert tells NTD local justice systems are to blame, too. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news centers on former Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson. He was apparently less than impressed with his previous employer's Fox Nation streaming service. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us the leaked video that brought this to light. The video obtained by Media Matters was taken prior to Carlson leaving Fox News. It shows the journalist on a phone call with an unknown male while on the set of Tucker Carlson Today. The two were discussing an arrangement to interview social media personality Andrew Tate. The interview was ultimately done in August 2022. I, I don't want to be a slave to Fox Nation, which I don't think that many people watch anyway. On its website, Fox Nation is described as an exclusive streaming service from Fox News with entertaining and informative shows that highlight the unique stories, history, and people of America. Nobody watches Fox Nation because the site sucks. I'm just frustrated with the, uh, it's hard to use that site. I don't know why they're not fixing it. It's driving me insane. And they're like making like lifetime movies, but they don't, they don't work on the infrastructure of the site. Like what? It's crazy. And it drives me crazy because it's like we're doing all this extra work and no one can find it. It's unbelievable, actually. I don't know who runs that site. But. Carlson also said he felt betrayed and resentful due to the problems with the site. Part, we're like working like animals to produce all this content and the people in charge of it, whoever that guy's, whatever his name is, like they're ignoring the fact that the site doesn't work. Fox News did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Tucker Carlson Tonight was among cable TV's top-rated programs for years. The show captured the highest audience on cable TV in March, averaging over 3 million viewers per episode. But on April 24th, Fox News announced that it had parted ways with Carlson. The media company did not provide a reason for the split. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The U.S. Supreme Court is taking up a case that could roll back the power of federal government. Meanwhile, a 2024 presidential candidate says he wants to eliminate the so-called administrative state. Here's the story. The Supreme Court on Monday determined it will hear a case challenging a U.S. Commerce Department rule on fisheries inspectors. The case is about a Department of Commerce rule requiring the owners of vessels to pay for having federal observers on board to oversee operations. The vessels in question tend to be small. The fishing companies said in their petition the rule requires herring fishermen to fork over 20% of their revenues to pay the salaries of at-sea monitors, which is an extraordinary imposition that few would tolerate on dry land, and that the monitors take up valuable space on their vessels and oversee their operations. The rule was never approved by Congress, but was implemented by a federal agency, which is part of the executive branch. Such rulemaking by federal agencies is called the administrative state, which critics call an illegitimate fourth branch of government. If the Supreme Court overturns the rule, this could significantly weaken the legal underpinnings of the modern administrative state. Meanwhile, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy gave a campaign speech in Manhattan last week talking about the administrative state. Most of the government's work is done by this illegal fourth branch of government. So the top of my domestic agenda is literally not reforming, because that's a promise I can't keep. I can't tame the beast, but we can kill the beast. And I think that we are going to literally, step by step, gut the administrative state as it exists. After the event, Ramaswamy told the Epoch Times that abolishing the administrative state would restore the lifeblood of our constitutional republic and economic growth in this country. A successful 2024 bid would make history as Ramaswamy would be the country's youngest ever commander-in-chief. However, this currently looks like a long shot with former President Donald Trump leading the pack. 
Starting next Thursday, federal employees will no longer have to be vaccinated against COVID-19. The White House says the requirement has saved lives, but is no longer necessary. It has been the subject of much controversy. Last year, the Supreme Court said the federal government can't mandate businesses to require vaccination, but can do so for its own employees and certain health care workers. The policy will end on May 11th, the same day the public health emergency for COVID-19 is set to expire. And starting May 12th, non-U.S. travelers entering the U.S. will no longer be required to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. As the mandates wind down, Pfizer reported a drop in revenue for the first quarter of the year. That's largely due to flagging sales of the COVID-19 vaccine. Last year, the company raked in more than $56 billion from its COVID-19 products. This year, the figure is only about $7 billion. Company officials say the sales drop was within expectation given plunging effectiveness and lower levels of infection in various countries. More on the COVID-19 vaccines, Texas lawmakers are investigating whether three top manufacturers misled the public. Attorney General Ken Paxton says Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson may have violated the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act. The law bans individuals from making false claims for the purpose of selling a product. Another concern is whether these companies engaged in research to increase the transmissibility of the virus and mislead the public about doing so. Paxson said the investigation was meant to discover the truth. The three companies now have 30 days to submit documents showing the vaccine's rates of side effects. The U.S. government could soon run out of money. That's after three months of stalled talks. But a report says top Republican Kevin McCarthy will meet with President Biden next week. A source told USA Today that Biden invited the four top Republicans and Democrats in Congress to talk on May 9th. It comes after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the government could default on its debt for the first time in history. She's urging Congress to raise or suspend the debt limits so that doesn't happen. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy wants the government to agree to cut spending before he will agree on a debt limit deal. But Biden wants each spending task to be discussed separately and there to be no limit on the debt. The Congressional Budget Office says there is a greater risk of the U.S. running out of funds in early June. What could a default on its debt mean for the U.S.? Let's go to Business News with NTD's Don Ma. Thanks, Kevin. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen notified Congress on Monday that the U.S. could default on its debt as early as June 1st. Now, that is if regulators do not raise or suspend the nation's borrowing authority. And here to talk about this with me is Mark Hamrick, Senior Economic Analyst at BankCrate.com. Now, I understand a lot of analysts uh, agree that it's unlikely to happen that the U.S. will default on its debts. But uh, I just want to know, practically speaking, if it does happen, how would a default directly impact regular folks like you and me? Well, it'd be uh, an economic catastrophe. I think that that is a given, and how that uh, sort of presents itself involves the fact that the government is responsible, the federal government in the United States is responsible for a lot of economic activity, does a lot of business, does a lot of business uh, with other businesses, uh, as well as, of course, supplying funding to individuals, whether it's members of the military, federal government employees, uh, to social sec security recipients, and provides health care to people who are senior citizens as well as those who are poor. So you can imagine uh, the impacts where you take out a huge slice of economic activity all at once. And there are also the mechanisms that are involved with, for example, uh, treasury bonds, where uh, treasury bonds are part of the backbone of the global financial system, where countries all across the world invest in these instruments. And they are, of course, getting some return on those investments. And so the government needs to be able to meet all of those obligations. Um, you know, I think that there's immense political pressure on Republicans and Democrats to avoid this kind of a catastrophe. Obviously, the president is now uh, willing to speak with the uh, Speaker of the House as well as others. And the hope is that this can be avoided uh, so that we don't have a severe economic event here in the United States, which would ripple across the globe. And what would that impact be around the globe? Would it cause a global financial crisis? 
I think that's I think that is a an assumption that most people are making. Of course, the problem is that, like a lot of things, this hasn't happened before. Uh, and so we don't know exactly how it presents itself. But let's look at, for example, what's happened here over the last uh, number of weeks with the failure of major banks. We're just talking about, three of the four top bank failures in U.S. history. And that alone is thought to being pushing the country closer to a recession because of restrictions in lending, that lending's being pulled back and there's less demand for loans and, and less supply of lending. Uh, so in that case, we're talking about really a, a less than a handful of financial institutions. And remember, during the Silicon Valley bank, bank failure, one of the things that compelled regulators to come to the rescue, so to speak, was that there was a fear that a large number of businesses would not be able to make payroll on that Monday morning, meaning that a lot of individuals wouldn't be getting the paychecks that they were expecting. Well, imagine magnifying that so many times over with the federal government unable to pay its obligations. That's really what we're talking about. And that's just a small slice of the kind of trouble that uh, we'd be talking about. So you would imagine uh, to uh, in, in the uh, event that the government were to go all the way up to this X date without raising the debt ceiling, that there would be uh, a great deal of disruption in financial markets, declines in stock prices, a lot of disruption in, uh, in the ability to obtain credit. And uh, all those things would be quite devastating for the economy. And remember, we're talking about economies around the world that have been struggling in the face of high and sustained inflation. Uh, and uh, so we're really courting additional trouble here if, if indeed this were to happen. Would it impact the faith and credit of the United States? Well, that's really what we're talking about, right? We're talking about uh, uh, an institution, the U.S., uh, the United States federal government, having previously been seen as immensely reliable in the ability and indeed the uh, behavior of, of making good on its obligations. And so for that streak to be interrupted uh, would be something that uh, damages the credibility of the federal government. I mean, it would be disastrous. But thank you so much today for talking with me, Mark. Thank you. The Treasury said Monday it plans to increase its borrowing during the April to June quarter of this year. Back to you, Kevin. Twitter struck back at the White House press secretary after she answered a question about the border crisis and what she says Biden has done about it. When it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down uh, by more than 90 percent, and that's because of this act, the actions that this president has taken. She was responding to a reporter who asked how President Biden plans to tackle the immigration crisis and if it's a concern for his 2024 presidential campaign. RNC Research posted the comments with added context. It showed a dramatic increase in illegal crossings since President Biden took office. Texas Congressman Tony Gonzalez weighed in on the border crisis yesterday. He told CNN the situation is so drastic that it feels like Title 42 is already over. Here's a look. What is happening on the border right now is very real. Everyone's looking at May 11th as this day where, where you know, uh, where Title 42 is going to end. In my eyes, Title 42 might as well have already ended. Uh, places like El Paso are completely overwhelmed. Gonzalez will vote on a House border bill next Tuesday, the same day Title 42 is set to end. The lawmaker previously sought provisions to the bill to help legal immigrants with the asylum process. And today on Capitol Hill, senators are probing judicial ethics after weeks of Justice Clarence Thomas being under the microscope. Our team is on the ground. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. for Capitol Report to find out what the senators are saying. The U.S. Marshal Service is working on updating a computer system hit by a ransomware attack earlier this year. An agency spokesperson shared Monday that it will soon bring a new version of the system online with better security. This after hackers hit a computer network back in February. It's used by the secretive Marshals Service Unit known as the Technical Operations Group. The TOG uses high-tech surveillance methods to track fugitives. The agency said at the time that the affected computer system held, quote, law enforcement sensitive information. The data included personal information of subjects of Marshal Service investigations and Marshal Service employees. 
The Marshal Service said most critical tools related to the network were restored within 30 days of the breach discovery. Pilots are showing their dissatisfaction. Right after the American Airlines Pilots Union voted overwhelmingly in favor of a strike, Southwest pilots began voting as well. American Airlines says that it's close to resolving the disputed contract issues with its 15,000 pilots. The outcome for Southwest Airlines pilots will be revealed after the voting concludes for its 10,000 members. This is the first time in Southwest's 51-year history that pilots have taken a strike vote. Southwest released a statement calling the vote a contract negotiating tactic. Even if either company's pilots do walk off the job, it won't happen for many months. Federal laws require many steps before a strike vote can lead to an actual strike. Members of the Writers Guild of America are going on strike across the U.S. today. The walkout will throw a wrench in production for many of Hollywood's major studios. Union negotiators were unable to reach a deal with the alliance representing the studios. The two sides were trying to iron out a new three-year contract. The old contract expired last night. The union wants improved compensation and royalties from streaming programs. They also want health and pension plan reform. The alliance cited demands around mandatory staffing levels and length of employment as the main points of contention. The work stoppage will take away jobs for crew members and affect a range of others in the film industry. The strike has the potential to go on for weeks or even months. The last strike by the Guild was in 2007. It lasted 100 days. The Oregon Secretary of State is in trouble for working with a cannabis company. She held a job with them at the same time her government was evaluating cannabis industry regulations. Shamia Fagan released the details about her deal. She was paid $10,000 a month to help an affiliate of a cannabis chain expand into other states, plus a $30,000 bonus for additional talks. The chain has also donated $45,000 to Fagan's political action committee. Fagan's office was conducting an audit that proved favorable to the cannabis industry when the news broke. The results of the audit essentially call to loosen regulation of the cannabis industry and encourage the state to fund it to help it grow. In response to the news, Fagan said she faced financial challenges following a divorce, so she took up the job as a side hustle. Federal and state law enforcement officials from Virginia and North Carolina are looking for two men who escaped from a Virginia jail. The Prince Edward County Sheriff's Office says they broke out sometime over the weekend and his office was notified Monday morning. The escapees are 26-year-old Alder Marin Sotelo and 44-year-old Bruce Callahan. Marin Sotelo is charged with first-degree murder in the death of a North Carolina sheriff's deputy. The FBI is leading the search. Authorities considered him extremely dangerous. Callahan was being held on federal drug and weapons charges. The U.S. Marshals Service is heading up the investigation for Callahan. A reward of up to $5,000 is being offered for information leading to his capture. The number of homicides in the U.S. has been going up for the past few years, and now a report is detailing where those increases are and are not coming from. Specifically, Richmond, Virginia, and Memphis topped the list for the highest increases per capita, while St. Louis and Atlanta saw the lowest. That's comparing the first quarter of this year to last year. We get some expert analysis on the factors involved. Joining me now is John Lott, the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center and author of Gun Control Myths. John, it is great having you with us. Thanks for having me on. We're going to take a look at a report by WalletHub. It examined 45 cities and it found that those with Democrat mayors actually experienced a higher increase in homicides than those with Republican mayors. Do you have any idea what's driving this trend after they looked at this data over the last two years? Well, I don't think it's any any mystery about what's going on. It's not particularly difficult. If you make it so it's less risky for criminals to go and commit crime, you're going to have you're going to have more crime. Uh, but it's not just the mayors. Uh, it's not just what happens with the police departments and cutting fundings and restrictions on what police can do. But you have similar people who have been elected. Uh, to be district attorneys or to be local judges. Uh, The decisions about how to fight crime are basically local decisions. You have district attorneys in many areas who are refusing to prosecute violent criminals. You have liberal judges who have released large numbers, in some places half or even two-thirds of the inmates from local jails. Uh, 
you know, again, if you make it so it's not risky for criminals to commit crime uh, in many different ways, you're going to have more crime. Yes, and John, like you alluded to, the whole justice system needs to be looked at. For example, Greg Adder, a professor of Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Central Missouri, he's explaining that there, where there's cities that there is this no-cash bail and then there's been pushes to defund the police, where you have those two things kind of working together, you create this cycle of more crime. Is there any way to break out of this? Yeah, it's to go and have district attorneys who prosecute violent criminals, have judges who will actually sentence them to jail, and uh, uh, to make it so that you have more resources for the police. You have those types of changes there, and uh, you'll make it riskier for criminals to commit crime, and you'll have less crime. And Professor Etter also points out that if there's a one-size-fits-all solution, which is happening in some of these cities, then there's going to be a further problem. Like, for example, if you have some police use of force, instead of dealing with just the problematic officer, they re resort to these broad-sweeping defunding movements. Can you comment on this? Right. Well, you know, again, it's the same type of point. Uh, you, some people may feel that they have legitimate concerns about a particular officer or whatever. It's unlikely that it's the whole police force. It's not systemic, as uh, some people would like to claim. And if you go and you defund the police, uh, you're making it so that criminals don't have much to worry about. I mean, New York City had a billion-dollar cut in, uh, in the budget for police per year. You had Chicago uh, cut 400 positions from the police force back in 2000 alone. You've had other similar changes from Austin, Texas, uh, to Los Angeles. And so, you know, it's just one of many ways that they've made it less risky for criminals to go and commit crime. Yes, following the death of George Floyd, there has been that big push to defund the police. So, John, some experts say that poverty rates are actually a bigger factor in contributing to these rising homicide rates than the politics of the mayor. For example, Memphis has a higher poverty rate, 25 percent, and Garland, Texas, both of these mentioned in the Wallet Hub report, only has about 13 percent, the national average. And these were both cities with high homicide rates. So can you comment on here comparing apples to apples? Well, I mean, the research that I've done and others have done indicate that things like poverty and income and uh, unemployment, those things only add up to a couple percent of explaining a couple percent of the changes in, uh, in violent crime rates. Uh, has very little to do with it. Uh, and surely there hasn't been huge changes in the poverty rate uh, between 2019, or haven't been huge increases since 2020 uh, in, these, in these same cities. Uh, I don't think that can explain very much at all. I think it's much simpler. I think it's just whether it's risky for criminals to go and commit crimes, and as you've made it less risky for them to do so, you've had more crime occur. Well, thanks for helping us look at the relative impact of some of these other factors. John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, it's always great speaking with you. Thank you very much. The Big Apple is hoping to crack down on car thefts, and it's using Apple AirTags to do it. The city says it's handing out 500 of the tags for people to put in their cars. The small devices allow users to track the location of an item through an app on their iPhones. The AirTags, which start at $29 each, are being provided by a nonprofit called the Association for a Better New York. The giveaway was announced during a press conference in the Bronx. That area has seen more than 200 car thefts this year alone, the highest in any precinct in the city. When our city faces an issue like car theft, in this case the proliferation of auto theft, we find a creative strategic way to correct the issue. Like new technology the mayor rolls out, our star chase, and now air tags redeployed in an innovative way. And coupled with that, there's regular crime prevention tips you should all follow when it comes to autos. Authorities say the NYPD will not be tracking the air tags that are being distributed. They will only track a vehicle if it is reported stolen by the owner. Bud Light beer sales continue to go down the drain. Parent company Anheuser-Busch is suffering for a marketing decision that put a transgender influencer's face on a can. Beer Business Daily says Bud Light sales in places like supermarkets and liquor stores fell by over 26% for the week ending April 22nd. They added that they've never seen such a dramatic shift in national share in such a short period of time. Bud Light put the face of transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney on a can in April. Mulvaney is a man who now identifies as a woman and has over 10 million followers on TikTok. 
Mulvaney showed off the can on TikTok on April 1st. Conservatives then accused the brand of promoting a transgender agenda and called for a boycott. The executive that thought up the campaign has since been placed on leave. Another unmanned balloon has been spotted. The U.S. military says they've been tracking it since last Friday. It crossed the coast of Hawaii at around 36,000 feet and is floating toward Mexico. A Department of Defense spokesperson told the Epic Times it's not yet known who owns the balloon. They say there's no indication it's being controlled by a foreign actor. The spokesperson says it didn't fly over any critical government sites and that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said no action will be taken against it. The department says it will continue to track the balloon's path. And coming up soon, within just five days, investigators around the world pulled over $3 billion out of China. That's according to data by a U.S. financial advisory firm. And from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii, the remains of World War II American airmen are on their way back home. We'll have the details for you soon when we return. Good to have you back. We're continuing our coverage with a rare glimpse into the Chinese Communist regime's military operations. A satellite imaging company showed for the first time a suspected airship base in China. U.S. satellite imaging company Black Sky took the images in November 2022, just three months before a Chinese spy balloon was shot down off the coast of South Carolina. They show a roughly 100-foot-long blimp It's in the middle of a runway at a desert military complex in northwest China. The images also show a pivot point used to launch airships, as well as a 900-foot-long airship hangar. Aerospace experts say the images could signal a notable advancement in China's airship program. There could be more versatile and maneuverable craft than previously known. And after the spy balloon incident in January, concerns over China's airship programs have increased in the U.S. $3.1 billion. That's how much money global investors took out of China in a mere five days. That's according to U.S.-based financial consultant firm Exante Data. It marks the longest outflow of funds since November. What's shaken investors' confidence? Head of research and analysis at Exante tells the Wall Street Journal it stems from the continued tensions between the U.S. and China and that the data suggests the economic reopening is largely over. Bloomberg analysts noting geopolitical tensions, ranging from issues on Taiwan to TikTok to semiconductor chips. As for how that translates to the stock market, U.S.-listed Chinese stocks lost over $100 billion in market value in April. Companies ranging from Alibaba to JD.com are down, sending the Nasdaq Golden Dragon China Index toward its longest streak of losses in more than a year, with the benchmark now heading towards its worst month since October. And it goes beyond stocks listed in New York. Bloomberg noting the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index, which tracks Chinese stocks in Hong Kong, ranks as the third worst performer in the past three months. That's among 92 stock benchmarks Bloomberg tracks. This comes on the heels of post-pandemic hopes for opening up, along with the Chinese regime telling global investors that China's back open for business. At the same time, China has tightened up its espionage law, ratcheting up pressure on foreign firms. U.S. schools hosting Confucius Institutes might receive federal funding. That's according to a plan the Pentagon proposed. An Indiana representative sounded the alarm. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has the details. China's Confucius Institutes once again back in the spotlight. Indiana Congressmember Jim Banks recently wrote a letter to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin questioning the DOD's plan to let universities that are tied to Confucius Institutes receive federal funding. He demanded that the DOD revise what he called the inadequate guidance, saying that the Beijing-backed institutions play the role of a Communist Party agent. 
The Defense Department announced the plan back in late March, granting waivers to enable schools to host the Confucius Institutes on campus. The institution was launched by China's Education Ministry in 2004. Despite framing itself as a cultural learning center, it often faces criticism for peddling the Chinese regime's agenda overseas and stealing foreign intellectual properties. A China's ex-propaganda chief openly stated that the Confucius Institute serves as an important part of the CCP's external propaganda structure. In 2021, the U.S. Senate proposed a bill to prevent schools hosting the institution from receiving federal funding. Over the last few years, most of its chapters at U.S. universities have been shut down, with a few currently operating. A ceremony in Singapore honors American airmen killed during World War II. Their remains were handed back to the U.S. this week. The remains were of the crew of a U.S. B-24 bomber. The aircraft was nicknamed Heaven Can Wait. It was shot down over the South Pacific in March 1944. Eleven crew members were on board at the time. The wreck was only discovered in 2018 after a decades-long search. Earlier this year, U.S. Navy divers recovered the soldiers' remains at a depth of about 200 feet. They were then shipped directly to Singapore for the repatriation ceremony. These young people are forever in our hearts and are forever young. May their return to the embrace of their families bring those families peace. And may we be inspired and sustained by their sacrifice and our efforts to keep the peace in the Pacific and in the world. The commander also called on nations to respect mutual sovereignty to support a free and open Indo-Pacific. Now the remains of the airmen are headed to Hawaii. There, experts from the Defense Department will work to identify them. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, on the battlefield in Ukraine, Kyiv says it has destroyed the most capable units of the Russian army. And Moscow was ramping up weapons production to supply the war effort. Nurses in England walk out in what they call their biggest strike yet. Even intensive care staff are taking part. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. At the front line of the war in Ukraine, Kyiv's top general says they have destroyed the most combat-capable units of the Russian army. We continue, despite all the forecasts and advice, to hold Bakhmut, destroying Wagner and the other most combat-capable units of the Russian army. The commander of the Ukrainian ground forces said their reserves are planning further operations. He added Russian troops were driven out of some positions in Bakhmut. On the other hand, Russia's Wagner Group said its forces continued to push forward, although they lost dozens of fighters. In Moscow, Russia's defense minister said his army has all the ammunition needed for battles this year. The number of the main types of weapons purchased has risen 2.7 times compared to 2022. And for weapons that are particularly in demand, it has risen sevenfold. This year, we have already supplied sufficient ammunition to strike the enemy effectively. He added that his country is ramping up production of weapons to back the war. He called a major rocket manufacturer to double the production of high-precision missiles. He added, they aren't just fighting Ukraine, but also unprecedented military aid from the West, and that they are attacking Ukrainian stores of Western-supplied weapons. Meanwhile, the Wagner chief continued to blame Moscow for not supplying enough ammunition to its fighters. A Ukrainian farmer is demining his own fields. He says he can't wait for official teams because he needs to start planting his crops. But he's come up with a way to keep safe. A Ukrainian farmer has come up with a novel idea to remove mines left in his fields after Russia's invasion. Oleksandr Krivstov, the general manager at his agricultural company, has kitted out his tractor with protective panels stripped from Russian tanks and operates it by remote control. He came up with the idea after deciding he couldn't wait for overworked official D-miners to clear his field in the village of Hrakove. 
We started doing this just because the crop sowing time has come and we can't do anything because the rescue services are very busy. We ran over an anti-tank mine. The protection got blown out. The tractor is safe. The mechanics were not here. Everyone is alive and safe. The equipment was restored and repaired. After Russian forces were driven back from parts of eastern Ukraine by a Ukrainian counteroffensive last year, many fields were left covered in mines, making it perilous for farmers to sow grain for the next harvest. Using the armor from damaged Russian military vehicles to protect the body of his tractor, Kryptsov bought a system that would enable one of his team to operate the tractor remotely from the bucket of a digger suspended in the air nearby. Sehi Dudak, head of the demining unit who oversees the work of the tractor, said it's useful because it can clear large areas with no risk to life. The amount of work is huge and we have no time to demine the fields. It would take years to demine this particular field by hand and to guarantee that there are no mines here. The Ukrainian government said on Friday about 30% of Ukrainian territory was mined by Russians and that the government was focused on demining agricultural land as soon as possible. Over to the UK, nurses are on strike in around half of England's hospitals, mental health centers and community services. A union leader has said nurses could continue to strike until Christmas. This latest round of walkouts comes ahead of a meeting to discuss the government's 5% pay offer. More on this from entities Malcolm Hudson. NHS services are facing major disruption as nurses walk out in a prolonged dispute over pay. The Royal College of Nursing, or RCN, has described this as their biggest strike yet. They've walked out of all areas, including intensive care. Health Secretary Steve Barclay has called the ongoing industrial action premature and disrespectful to the trade unions who are meeting with the government to discuss a pay offer on Tuesday. However, RCN General Secretary Pat Cullen said Barclay shouldn't be disrespectful to the nursing staff out today. She added that they intend to ballot their members again, meaning we could see the strikes go on until Christmas. The 28-hour strike, ending just before midnight tonight, comes after a high court judge ruled it would be unlawful for the strike action to continue into Tuesday, as had been originally planned. Barclay said he is cautiously optimistic that unions will accept the pay offer for nurses, despite increasingly heated rhetoric between negotiators. On Tuesday, unions in the NHS Staff Council will consider the offer of a 5% pay increase, alongside a one-off payment worth between just over £1,600 and just under £3,800. Cullen said the offer isn't good enough and that the RCN will continue to strike. We will continue to lose at the to them and they want to have their voice heard so how are they going to have their voice heard and have this brought to a conclusion by the secretary of state getting into a room and starting to negotiate again with me paying those people a decent wage the offer that was put on the table didn't address the issues for nursing and it didn't address the issues within the health service and that's fundamentally what needs to happen right away labor leader sakir starmer said the government needs to accept responsibility for the strikes I think it is important to recognise the underlying causes of this because nurses and many others have seen you know, a real drop in their wages and their living standards because of the cost of living crisis and the government's got nothing to say to them about that. So I think you know, responsibility here lies at the door of number 10. They need to accept that responsibility and do something about it. The RCN strike involves nursing staff from A&E, intensive care and cancer care for the first time. Exemptions were granted for nurses in the emergency departments of some hospitals. Nurses comprise a quarter of NHS staff and are the biggest portion of the health service workforce. The NHS Confederation said the strikes have taken a heavy toll on services and urged unions to accept the pay deals. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Coming up, we'll go below the streets in Lipson to see an ancient Roman structure still holding up in the Portuguese capital. Visitors are only allowed in twice a year. Crews are busy cleaning up oil that drifted ashore along Croatia's northern Adriatic coast. Locals raise concerns about the pollution and the impact on tourism. Stay tuned for more on that when we return.
Welcome back. We have a unique story for you. Twice a year, a hatch in a busy Libson street opens to reveal steps leading to one of the Portuguese capital's most ancient sites. And its 2,000-year-old Roman structure still holds up the buildings above. In central Lisbon, tourists are queuing to go down a hatch to access underground Roman ruins called the Roman Galleries. We are inside a cryptoporticus, an artificial system that was built by the Romans during the time of Emperor Augustus in the first century AD, when Lisbon became a true municipality and started to be formally seen as an important city in this province and in the Roman Empire. It's believed the Romans used this kind of structure on uneven or difficult land to support large public buildings. This architectural solution created a horizontal support platform in an area with slopes, and Lisbon is a very hilly city. This structure guaranteed, and 2,000 years later, continues to guarantee that the buildings above our heads are stable and safe for those who live, work and walk up there. The Romans occupied the city, then known as Olisipo, beginning around 200 BC. The city remained under Roman control for several centuries. It was discovered for the first time in 1771, when the city was being reconstructed after the 1755 earthquake. The area that we know today as the Basha Pombalina downtown area was completely destroyed, very affected, and this was one of the first places to be rebuilt after the earthquake. There is an aquifer running beneath the city, so when the galleries are closed, the space is usually flooded and the water table is more than one metre deep. The water, which is essential for its preservation, must be pumped out to allow access. It is a call for attention to the richness of heritage and archaeology Lisbon has. Lisbon is one of the oldest European cities. It has a very rich history, an absolutely admirable heritage, a very long history of occupation that dates back to prehistory. It opens up for only a few days in April and September each year. Tickets to visit the galleries usually sell out within 15 minutes. Those who manage to get a ticket say the tour is worthwhile. Uh, I think it's really great. Like, uh, I wouldn't imagine there's like um, this under of Lisbon. Uh, so it, it's surprising for sure. It's a wonderful tour, revealing Lisbon and Olisipo. It's unmissable. I waited two years to go on this tour. Some marveled at how good the Roman construction work was for the structure to survive an 18th century earthquake which killed an estimated 60,000 people in Lisbon alone. A buried treasure discovered in Italy is one of a few hordes of ancient coins ever found intact. Archaeologists spotted the glimmering coins in the Tuscan forest northwest of Livorno in November 2021. They unearthed 175 coins that had been buried in a terracotta pot. Researchers determined they were silver Roman denarii coins they were dated from around 160 BC up to about 82 BC. According to the archaeological group, all but two were intact and in good condition, and those two can be restored. Researchers say it's impossible to know the story behind the treasure for sure, but they think it most likely belonged to a former soldier from one of Rome's wars. He was likely saving up to buy a farm, but the soldier likely died before he was able to unearth the coins the coins are set to be displayed at the Museum of Natural History of the Mediterranean in Livorno. The exhibition is scheduled for May 5th to July 2nd. Crews are hosing down mysterious clumps of oil along Croatia's northern coast. They're trying to remove quickly before the tourists arrive. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the latest on the cleanup. About four miles of Croatia's Adriatic coast needs to be cleaned off. Small patches of oil stuck to rocks and wild limestone beaches near the town of Pula. No official explanation has been given for the oil. It is unbelievable to me that after so many months, it is still not known who to blame. We don't have that much industry in the Republic of Croatia, unfortunately. So it's crazy to me that nothing is yet known, or it doesn't want to be said. Tourism accounts for 20% of Croatia's economy. The sector has just begun recovering from the pandemic. 
The coast is polluted. A large part has been cleaned up. The tourist season is approaching and tourists will be able to come. But a lot of work still remains. There will be a problem because this constantly keeps coming, though in smaller quantities. There will be a problem with tourism when guests arrive and probably step into it. The cleanup involves civil defense, firefighters and volunteers. They've been working for months. We ourselves, as Natura Historica, organized a cleanup action. But we saw that after five, six, seven hours of cleaning, we hadn't actually cleaned anything. But it was rather a Sisyphean task. This isn't the first time oil has drifted ashore in the area. If we have to go through the same thing every year, it is intolerable, and it must be prevented. Cleanup operations are also expensive. These are certainly big costs for us as the country of Istria, and that's why we are finding a way to secure the means to be able to finance it all. But as I said, we really hope that the one who did it, from the financial side, will bear the consequences and costs. Some media reports suggest the pollution was due to a nearby power plant. The facility reported a technical glitch earlier in November, but these allegations have not been confirmed. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Just ahead, we'll take you on a trip to Luton, the historic heart of the British hat-making tradition. A new exhibition celebrates headpieces from all over the globe. And James Bond actor Daniel Craig is bowing out. Who will take over the role of 007? We'll be back with more soon for you here in NTD News. A new exhibition celebrates hats and headwear from around the world. Hats Made Me opened in Luton, the historic heart of the British hat-making industry. If you want to get ahead, get a hat. The Hats Made Me exhibition celebrates the global significance of hats. Featuring more than 200 objects from all around the world, it just opened in Luton, once the capital of British hat-making. Well, my aim was to celebrate Luton's history um, within the hat industry, as well as um, celebrate all the amazing millinery um, and hat manufacturing that is being done in the UK today. Um, and then to make sure that um, all the many diverse communities of both Luton as well as the UK were represented across the exhibition. There are items worn by global celebrities, such as supermodel Iman's headpiece from the 2021 Met Gala. And there are also hats marked by tragedy. This pink hat was inspired by the hat worn by former U.S. First Lady Jackie Kennedy on the day when her husband was assassinated. Luton has a special link to the industry. Luton is the historic heart of, um, of British hat making. So there were the largest percentage of people um, worked within the hat industry here compared to any other part in the UK. This is the heart of Luton's historic hat district. At one time, these buildings now converted were factories producing thousands of hats each day for the UK and to export to the rest of the world. Though the industry receded over the past 60 years, hats are still being made here to this day. This milliner even moved his business from London. I would like to be immersed and surrounded by the actual creators and the actual industry rather being from outside coming in trying to do something. So I think being in Luton really grounds me about what's possible and what's not possible in regards to the actual hat making industry. This Australian milliner specialises in racewear hats. She is exhibiting a colourful rainbow hat she designed for the Melbourne Cup in 2018. There seems to be fewer occasions that require a hat as part of the formal dress code, but the racing world is an exception and she's thankful for it. Uh, the racing keeps us afloat basically, so without um, dress codes like Royal Ascot has, I think we would be struggling a little bit. Um, but obviously we have to thank the monarchy as well because all royal occasions generally have a hat attached to them uh, and hopefully the same will be said about the coronation. One of the star exhibits is this beautiful black lace mantilla once worn by Queen Isabella II of Spain over 100 years ago. Hats Made Me runs until December. The first of Ian Fleming's James Bond books celebrated its 70th anniversary on April 13th. Daniel Craig has wrapped up his stint as James Bond, and many are wondering who will take on the role of 007. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more for us. Who will be the next James Bond? 
Here are some of the candidates for the role. Aaron Taylor Johnson is known for his roles in the films Kick-Ass and Avengers Age of Ultron. How come nobody's ever tried to be a superhero? Well, I don't know. Probably because it's impossible. Putting on a mask and helping people? How's that impossible? I was just a regular guy. Who are you? I'm Kick-Ass. Henry Cavill rose to prominence as the latest actor to portray Superman in various films, including Man of Steel. Join you and the sun. You will help them accomplish wonders. I believe if the world found out who I really was, you think it's not an S. Well, here it's an S. How about Superman? Excuse me. Reggae Jean Page, the breakout star of Bridgerton, is another potential competitor for the role. The Zimbabwean British actor is cast alongside Chris Pine and Hugh Grant in Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Henry Golding rose to fame for his leading role in the box office blockbuster Crazy Rich Asians. The Malaysian British actor was also the lead in the films Snake Eyes and Last Christmas. What about us taking an adventure east? So your family is rich? We're comfortable. It's developers in all of Singapore. Much more of a hire. This is rich. Unrefined banana. No, no, no. Uh, those are a few fingers. Touchable. But right. If he chose me, he would lose his family. Another candidate for the role of 007 is actor James Norton. He's performed in Little Women, McMafia, and Happy Valley. Lucian Laviscount can be seen in the Netflix show Emily in Paris and the series Snatch. Tom Hardy is a leading contender as well. He's known for his roles in Venom and Inception. I always hire life for him. I want to do this, trust me. Oh, I have a parasite. Yeah. Name is Chen. You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. The actor received widespread praise for his role as Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Today is the perfect day to give an apple to your favorite teacher. That's because it's National Teacher Appreciation Day. The day is celebrated annually on the Tuesday of the first full week of May. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt championed National Teacher Day back in 1953 as a way to honor teachers. Educators with the National Education Association solidified the date with a vote. Meanwhile, the National Parent Teacher Association established the entire first full week of May as National Teacher Appreciation Week. That gives you several days to say thank you to all teachers for their dedication to educating us all. And now for a video showing a run-in with Mother Nature. A principal at an elementary school in Virginia got quite a surprise yesterday morning. James Marsh was caught on camera while opening a school trash dumpster. A black bear poked its head out inches away from him. The two ran in opposite directions, with the bear heading toward a wooded area. No injuries are reported, either for Marsh or the bear. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan. NTD News, New York City.